For the News and Observer, I'm Dawn Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, December 26, 2022. I'm here today with Senator Kirk Devier, a Fayetteville Democrat whose term ends in about a week. Uh, He was first elected in 2018. Before that, he served on the Fayetteville City Council for a couple of years. Senator Devier, thank you for being here. Don, great to be here with you. Uh, So now that you'll be leaving the Senate and not in the session, will you pay attention to the Senate uh, or watch it or or glad to to not have to worry about that? You know, that's uh, I will probably, you know, stay in touch with it some. Of course, I've made some great friends uh, over the years in the Senate and so and in the House. So I'm sure I will keep up with it in some ways. And, And of course, you know, what's happened locally with our local delegation, we've got a brand new uh, delegation for the most part. So I'm sure I'll be you know, keeping in touch and doing what I can to help in any way that I can. But uh, it will definitely won't be the full time position that I've had for the last four years. We're going to talk a little bit about why you won't be in the Senate uh, soon. But uh, first, looking way ahead. And of course, everybody asks this. Does this mean that you'll run for office again, you think? Um, you know, a lot of people ask me that question. Um, I'm getting that a lot. Um I'm not sure what the future holds. I know that, uh, not to get overly religious, but I know that God's had his hand in, in this journey so far for me, in this journey of service with me and my wife. Um, so we're just going to see where it leads us and, and uh, see where that, that is. My wife likes to say that uh, DNA service is in my DNA. So um, for now, I'm going to spend more time with my son. Uh, I'm going to spend uh, some time with my, my wife because uh, she has definitely been shouldering the burden over the last four years of raising our young son. Um, spend a little time in growing my business and uh, stay plugged into a degree and we'll just see what the future holds. There's a lot of dust and landscape to settle over the next uh, couple of years for sure. Um, Javier mentioned for our listeners, he mentioned service. He uh, served in the Army previously in his district, of course, is adjacent to Fort Bragg. Uh, so let's talk about your time in the Senate. Are there certain bills, certain legislative wins that um, that you're most proud of or, or that were... I think for me, there was probably a, a, a central theme for me. I, I, when I went to the Senate, I wanted to ensure that Cumberland County voice was strong there, um, that it was part of the conversation and that we were at the table. Um, and I think we we're able to do that. I mean, when I look back at the school reopening bills, the justice reform bills, the transportation funding, environmental issues and funding like Gen X, um, and then ultimately the budget. I mean, the first one in four years, um, you know, Cumberland County's voice, the people that I represented were at the table. We were in the middle of the hard discussions. Um, and, and I think that's important. Um, and that's really what I set out to do. So there was a lot of accomplishments over uh, over our four years. But for me, I think probably the biggest accomplishment was uh, what I believe was my number one job in the Senate. And that was to help people, help people in my district. And we did that. Uh, you know, we our office answered over 4,000 constituent uh, requests and asked for help uh, over the time I was in the Senate. Uh, and just the stories and the way that we were able to help individual people, people that had lost their job or couldn't get their homes or were struggling with after hurricane recovery with a rebuild program or with Gen X or a, a litany of things, being able to help them individually um, truly was something that I will take with me. Um, and the touched my life. So let's talk about two of the things that you mentioned, and that'll be a segue into when we start talking about the uh, the, the last primary. You mentioned the schools reopening and the budget. 
And you've been among this group of about four, depending on the vote of the more moderate Democrats that have pushed for uh, both budget negotiations and the, the schools reopening compromise. So what was your role there? And then however you want to start talking about the primary as a result of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with the school reopening, um, I clearly heard from my district that our children need to be back into schools. And I really took a hard stance on it. Um, you know, early on, I took a hard stance on it. I, I knew that um, the COVID was beginning to subside. We had a vaccination that was out there or vaccine that was out there. Um, I took a hard stance um, against a lot of my party to include the governor. Um, but I think it forced some conversations. Um, you know, that was one of the one of the votes that I, you know, voted to override a, a veto. Um, and I think that brought people back to the table and that we, you know, we had a, a group that worked hard. I, I got a, my hats off to Senator Deanna Ballard who worked hard on that, um, but it brought people back to the table. We found a compromise that the governor and the General Assembly could live with, and we moved forward. And more importantly, we got kids back in school, and that was something that I believe my district wanted. Um, and when you look at the budget, um, you know, I, I was one that voted early on for the budget. I believed, again, that's what the people in my district needed. There was a lot of resources for the, my district in that in that early budget. Uh, and as we progressed, there were four Democrats that uh, were on the conference committee. Um, and I think once, you know, a lot of conversations happen in between the legislative leadership and the, and the governor. And I think once Medicaid came off the table and the discussions really stalled uh, and stopped between the governor and the legislative leaders, I think that's when you saw the group of us kind of push in and say, we've, we've got to get to a budget. I said that all along. Anybody that I talked to, I said, including you, Don, in one of your interviews, we have to find a compromise for this budget. And so I think, you know, we leaned in and there was some, you know, great Republicans on the other side of the aisle and, and the four Democrats, at least in the Senate and the group that was in the House on the conferees. And I think we just, you know, tried to find common ground and tried to get to uh, a, a compromise budget. And it was the first one in four years and North Carolinians deserved a budget. Uh, once again, you know, some viewed that as, uh, you know, that I was bucking the party line. And, you know, even though there was four of us that, that were working, I, I viewed it as we were working in the best interest of not only my community, but the people across the state, no matter which side of the aisle they were on or who they were or where they lived. Um, we needed to have a budget because we hadn't had one in four years and, and things needed to happen. It was also late. Uh, those of you that are, of course, all of you that are, are familiar with, with the legislature will remember this of new, new listeners. Some context you should know is that the state budget the, the, the two-year budget that's passed during the long session, which will happen again this coming year, did not pass until, did not become law until almost Thanksgiving of 2021. Now, the fiscal year starts July 1st. So all this stuff was delayed, and the way North Carolina state government works is it there's no shutdown like in the federal government. It just stays at the same spending, but it causes a lot of problems. People don't get raises. Nobody's happy with it. So the negotiations including the long stalled time, drug out for a really long time before Cooper signed that into law. So that was right before the holidays. And then after the holidays and into this year comes primary season and you were running again and then something happened. So tell us, tell us in your words, what, what happened, how you found out about what was, uh, what was going to go down? Well, it, it I don't think it was a surprise to me, uh, maybe a surprise at who ended up being my primary opponent. Um, but 
you know, the political machine, as I'll call it, the political arm of Governor Cooper threatened me early on. And they said, you know, they'd primary me. Um, and that was a clear threat and they've made good and they made good on it. You know, they did they, that included um, recruiting in my actively recruiting in my district and talking to people along with a poll that went along with it. So I had an idea of who my opponent may be. Um, you know, and I just think it boiled down to, a, you know, a different way of looking at it. I mean, I believe that, um, you know, they wanted me to be loyal no matter what, push the button that they tell me to push or wanted me to push. Um, but I was I was elected and I believe that I was elected to do what's right for my community, uh, for the people in my community and the people across the state. Um, and unfortunately, you know, those, you know, those positions get crossed sometimes. Um, what's right for your community and what's the, the party loyalty line. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't change anything that I did. Uh, I, I think maybe the only thing that I would do is maybe try to have, uh, you know, deeper conversations or more conversations or direct conversations with Governor Cooper uh, during those hard times when some of those hard votes were happening versus it being filtered through other people. And don't get me wrong, we did have some conversations in the mansion one-on-one -on -one and with other groups but I think uh, th there's a time where you can't filter it through other people. I was very focused on solutions and was very pragmatic about it. Um, I built re relationships to find those compromises. Um, but I just think that's we got crossed. I was I was focused on solutions. We were focused. Other other people were focused on just that extreme party loyalty. Um, and it, it unfortunately it caused a it caused a primary uh, that was very well funded on the other side. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm ultimately not, you know, I ultimately lost the primary as, as people know. Um, but it's interesting to look that of the four people from the budget and people want to point back to the budget, but I believe it was a bigger, uh, it was bigger than just the budget. Um, of the four people that, uh, was on the conference committee with me in the budget, uh, I'm the only one that got targeted. The other three are Senator Paulo, Senator Ben Clark, and Senator Don Davis. Davis and Clark both ran for Congress. Clark lost. Davis won. And Lowe, I believe, yeah, he won re-election, so he'll be in the Senate this coming year. Um, I had a, did a story maybe a year or two where he changed his vote after Cooper asking him that, that he pointed out. So why do you think that you were... You were singled out as the target then? You know, I, I don't know. That's a that's a question for um, not me, um, you know, but I, I still believe, you know, Governor Cooper and I, you know, we share a lot of the same values and visions for people in North Carolina. I've said that before. I, I just I believe that it's unfortunate that his team viewed me as a threat versus an ally, uh, especially with the work that we were able to get done and, and how we were able to move things forward. But I also learned that once you cross that team, You've crossed that team and you're on the outside and you just need to know that. What do you mean by the team? I, I, I just mean th there is a, you know, there is a political machine uh, that operates. Uh, that's no, you know, that's nothing new, especially probably in your world or the or your, or your listeners world. I mean, that's that's politics. That's how it works on both sides. Um, so, you know, I just. You just have to know that going in when you're when you're making uh when you're deciding how you're going to how you're going to function as a legislature legislator you're not the only budget conferee that you said it's not just the budget that lost their election brian farkas in the house lost his election of course that was in the general election not the primary no other candidate had 
a governor-endorsed opponent on the other side against him in a primary? So I had asked Governor Cooper this and a few different um, press availabilities about why he endorsed Evier's opponent. And he said things that, you know, you said that weren't weren't any different that um, Val Applewhite, who who won the primary and won, and, and she'll be the new the new senator for the district, uh, teacher pay, Medicaid expansion, that sort of thing. So you think it was more than than just those issues? And what do you think this means for the uh, the Democratic Party? That that you know sometimes you are primaried if they feel that you're not always going to vote with them. You know, I think that was part of the calculation on why I was primaried is to make sure a lesson was sent. Uh, you know, a message was sent. Um, you know, I again, you know, my message to people are, you know, you need to do what's right for the people in your district and the people of this state and not worry about the outcome. Um, you know, people always say you want a politician that votes the way they need to vote and not worry about the next election. Um, in a lot of ways, that's what I did. Um, and, and I, you know, after being threatened and knowing I was going to have a primary, I still continue to vote the way I needed to vote. I think I raised a lot of eyebrows when there was a veto override that came in after I had been primaried and I voted the way that I thought I needed to vote. Um, and that was sustaining the veto, even though everybody thought I was going to try to send a message. Um, you know, people need to do what's right for them, regardless of the outcome. All right, we need to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this. Um, and Representative Richardson, who was the only one that spoke on the record uh, in your defense, uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer politics reporter Don Vaughn, here with State Senator Kirk Devier, Fayetteville Democrat, whose term will end at the end of this year. Before the break, we talked about him being primaried by uh, Governor Cooper, who endorsed his opponent, who ended up going on to win, and what his time was like in the Senate. So we're going to talk a little bit more about, about being primaried and what happened. And at the time, uh, another Cumberland Democrat was the only Democrat that would talk to me on the record about uh, Devier being primaried by the governor, and that was uh, House member Billy Richardson, who did not run this year. And Richardson had said that Cooper made a mistake and shouldn't have done it. And uh, just wanted to give you a chance to say anything you want, want about about Richardson and and how you felt uh, just being a member of the party when when that happened. Of course, this happens to other people. Cothermas in the Republican Party, obviously, a much much different situation it isn't about votes loyalty. Um, but if the party wants to wants to take you out, Republicans did that to uh, Congress member. Congressmember Cawthorn. So this happens in parties in various states at, at, at different levels. But this one was about, you said, I mean, not just the budget, but other things like that with the more moderate Democrats and the sending a message to other people. So it was about you, but also not about you. So anyway, uh, going back to uh, the fact that Richardson uh, took up for you and what you thought about that and, and just the, the rest of the time after the primary. Representative Richardson, Billy is a, a dear friend. He's actually one of the first people I talked to. He and uh, former Representative Rick Glazier, when I was looking to run for this seat uh, in 2018 for the Senate. Um, and he's a dear friend. Um, and and uh, I truly appreciate, and I've told him that multiple times, the way that he did take a stance and stood up for me when uh, a lot of other people could have said some similar things uh, and, and may not have for whatever reason they chose. Uh, Billy's a statesman. He's uh, he's made a, a huge impact uh, on our community, on our state um, as he leaves uh, 
as he leaves service, as he rotates out and retires at the end of this session. Um, but just a dear friend, uh, a dear friend of our families uh, and somebody that I know that I will um, will continue to have a relationship. We talk routinely. We probably talk two or three times a week still. All right. Well, let's talk about how without Richardson, without Devier, without Farkas, I'd mentioned earlier, without Davis and Clark in the Senate, without Chuck Edwards in the Senate, without Jeff Jackson in the Senate, without a lot of people in both the, the both chambers this next year. Some people don't run, some people lose. It's going to be different. Of course, Republicans also got a supermajority in the Senate, just barely, and are a few short in the House. And Speaker Moore has told myself and other reporters repeatedly that he thinks he's going to have some Democrats voting with him. Of course, Cooper says he doesn't think that's going to happen. So we'll we'll see how that pans out. But what do you think the 2023 legislative session is going to be like with the new makeup of who's in there, who's who was, who's new, who's still around, and these even closer votes than in the past? Yeah, I think on the Senate side, you got to also remember that a lot of those seats that were vacated because people won uh, congressional seats, a lot of those seats are being filled by people that came over from the House. So you look at the Gail, Gail Adcock, Adcock, and you look at Greg Meyer and some others, Rachel Hunt. Um, so you're getting some experience to come into the Senate, although they're in the super minority. Um, so I think what you're going to see overall in the legislature, and I've said this before, is I think you're going to see some of the switching of where the negotiations on legislations happen more within the legislature and not so much with the legislative leadership and the governor, but you're going to, at least in the Senate, um, especially being in the super minority, and I'll just speak for the Senate because I really can't speak for the House, but I think the relationship that a Senator Berger has and a Senator Blue because of their mutual respect for each other, I think that's going to create some opportunity to um, you know, work together and find some common ground on legislation. You know, Senator Jay Chaudhry working with other whips like Senator Jim Perry. Um, I think that's where some of the, uh, the legislation is going to happen. I think the interesting thing to watch is what's going to happen between the House and the Senate. And we saw this last session with this. Well, we're still in session, but we saw this with Medicaid. Um, and two very different versions within the House. Senate passed a version, the House passed a version. We could never find common ground. You saw it with sports betting. You saw it with medical marijuana. Um, so now as you look forward into 2023, do you think, you know, do we potentially see more? Can the House majority parties agree on what the legislation should look like? Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think that's going to be one to watch more than it is uh, how the Democrats uh, operate, because I believe, you know, they are in a super majority or minority uh, and the Republicans are in a working supermajority just based on where the votes are in the House um, and not having the votes. And, of course, in the super minority in the Senate. You'd mentioned uh, Republican Senator Deanna Ballard with the schools reopening negotiations. She lost her primary. Uh, she was double bunked with Senator Ralph Heiss, who will, who will, will be back. He's one of the approach chairs, so he'll have a, a leading role. But without without Ballard on the Republican side, she's a very prominent senator with you know, fewer Democrats. Who do you think of um, Democrats or Republicans, too, are going to be some of those key negotiators, people that will uh, have a stronger voice, you know, whether within floor speeches or behind the scenes? Or who do you think should that maybe doesn't already that that's been in the Senate and is reelected? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I mean, I think you'll continue to see, you know, I think you'll see Michael Lee, who's a I would say is a very, you know, a, a moderate member 
uh, of, of their caucus. I think you will see, especially on the education side, I think you'll see him. He's uh, extremely articulate, uh, has a good grasp of what's important to North Carolina and what's important to his district. I think you'll see people like him step up more. I think, you know, within the Democratic side, I think you'll see, you know, the experience of a, a Gail Aycock, uh, uh, you know, a Jay Chaudhry, of course. I think you'll continue to see Mike Woodard, you know, be that breach, you know. I'm hopeful for things out of Rachel Hunt on the education side because we we on the caucus side we've got a vacuum with the loss of Don Davis, um, so I, I think you're going to see some active voices. Uh, you know, I think um, I think there's strong voices on both sides. You know, I think you'll hear more out of Senator Newton as a majority leader, of course, uh, Senator Perry and his role. I think you'll continue to see Senator Johnson from a commerce standpoint. Um, and when you look at transportation issues, which are probably going to be front and center in 2023, you know, the, the dynamics with uh, Senator Sawyer uh, working and setting up this NC10 program, working with Senator Woodard and working with Democrats, bringing them into the process. I think that's what you're going to see more of. I'm hopeful that we're going to see more of that. Now, given Republicans are going to be able to set their agenda. They don't have to ask any Democrats anything ever if they don't but, want. Right? But I think that, you know, what I saw is they do. At certain times and in certain on certain issues, they want that input, you know, and they, they do under, they do understand that. And I think a willingness for the Democrats to find the issues that they want to find some common ground and advance their agenda, advance the things that are important to them. Um, I think they're going to have to find where they can work and where they're willing to push to and on those things where they need to draw a line. Um, whether it's around, you know, voting rights or, or women's reproductive rights and abortion, then they're going to have to find those lines where they're going to have to draw. Um, I think it's just going to be a different makeup. I think the negotiations are truly going to happen in the Senate, in the House, and then between the House and the Senate, more so with uh, the governor and the legislature. Do you think it's kind of just what we've already been hearing from Senate Leader Berger and House Speaker Moore, they're the House and Senate Republicans are on different ends of um, with you mentioned reproductive rights with abortion. You know, Berger has said, um, you know, at the end of the first trimester and or if they do anything at all, where the House listening to more where his personal opinion is, it's, you know, it's much earlier. So we'll kind of see where that comes out. I'm sure there'll be lots of bills that are filed, but those that actually advance, do you think because the Senate has that definite supermajority, what they want is going to, you know, ultimately be the the winner with with what the language is and, and bills that pass in the House or kind of depends on the issue. Maybe. I think it's going to really depend on the issue. I think when you look at reproductive rights and, and the abortion issue specifically, you know, I don't think all the caucuses have really sat down and figured out where they want to go. Um, both on the Democrats and the Republican side, you know, are the Democrats going to be willing to lay a compromise or they're going to lay a hard line at certain weeks or, you know, where they're going to where their red lines going to be, so to speak. Um, are the Republicans going to be able to with their different, um, you know, between the House and the Senate, are they going to be able to find a compromise that both chambers can live with? Um, that can be very difficult and that can take some time. I mean, again, I point back to the some of the legislation we had this session with Medicaid and with I think we're going to be in the same boat again. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, 
the steps that we made this session get us that much closer. And I was extremely hopeful that we'd get it across the finish line before the end of the session. I really thought we were going to. Um, I think time just kind of ran out in the election and everything else that happened around it and the dynamics of the supermajorities play into it as well. Um, I, I still think, you know, the House and the Senate have to work through their points. I think it'll be a little bit easier now because now it's going to really be a decision for the House and the Senate and the governor can sign it or not sign it. Um, but I, I believe it'll be, you know, they will work something out, um, but it will be uh, on their terms. All right. So it's about time for our picks for headliner of the week. But but real quick, one more question. What's something about either the people or the building itself that new lawmakers should know about the legislative building? One, try to learn your way around quickly, um, especially in the legislative building. But I think second, it, whether you're in the center of the house, get to know your principal clerk. On the Senate side, Sarah Holland is just, she's a wealth of information and she'll always point you in the right direction and, and understand the importance of the um, the general staff that there that is there and the resources that they can provide you. All right. Shout out to the clerks. All right. Now it's time for our picks for headliner of the week. Uh, Senator Devier, you go first. Who or what is your headliner? <laughs> Headlines are a little hard, especially when you have a six-year-old and it's all about Christmas and all about his birthday uh, at the beginning of December. So my headline is probably anything that my son is thinking about for Christmas right now and ensuring that uh, we uh, we have a great Christmas for him. Okay. Um, going also with the holiday theme, my headliner is upcoming New Year's. And so my headliner is 2022. Um, we made it. I saw a meme the other day that was like, Nobody make these big plans for 2023 is going to be your year. Let's just all tiptoe into it quietly. Don't disturb anything. Like, let's just ease in and hope everything goes well. So I hope everyone uh, eases out of 2022 and eases into 2023 just fine. And that we all have uh, a great, a great year. Uh, Senator Devier, thank you so much for being here today and talking with me. Um, I'm Don Vaughn for the News and Observer. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.